Kafar Nahum, the town of Nahum, or the village that Nahum lived in. And it could be that he lived around the Sea of Galilee and he went out to preach a message, a message of judgments uh, to the Ninevites. This book is a sequel to another book, the book of Jonah. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Give them this message, for their wickedness has come up before me. A message was preached to the Ninevites about 100 to 150 years before this book, Nahum, was written. It was a message really contingent upon what they would do with it. Now, Jonah went out to preach God's judgment, but because the whole city repented, there was a national revival, God spared Nineveh. But over a hundred years has passed. The revival was very short-lived. Now the Ninevites have lapsed back into incredible wickedness. So wicked that they become the dread of Western Asia. Now there's many reports that we've shared about the Ninevites. How that they would take their victims and pull the skin off of them while they were alive and kill them to death slowly by extracting their outer epidermal layer. There are accounts of the Assyrians digging holes and burying men up to their necks, cutting a hole in their tongue, attaching a leather thong to it and tying it down. It would drive them mad and then finally kill them. When Sennacherib, the head of the Assyrians, would take over an area, people were so scared of them that often whole cities would line up and just commit suicide rather than be delivered into the hands of the Assyrians because of the kind of cruelty and abomination that they treated their captives with. The entire book of Nahum is a judgment. No turning back, no grace this time, no second chances. You've had your chance, you've used it up, you are doomed Your wound is incurable. None can heal you. There is a parallel to this over in the book of Isaiah. We may turn to it later on. We may not, depending on our time. In chapter 36 of Isaiah, where Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, is just wiping out the whole Near East. He's taking it over, ruthlessly overcoming each area. He sweeps down into Israel, sends his governor, Rabshakeh, up to Jerusalem. And Rabshakeh stands before the walls of Jerusalem. As people are seated upon the walls, it was quite an impressive scene. Rabshakeh, in Hebrew, said, What confidence is this in which you trust? I know that you're speaking of war and strength for war, but these are idle words. And don't listen to your king, Hezekiah, who was the king of Jerusalem at that time. Don't listen to Hezekiah who says, trust in the Lord. The Lord's not going to deliver you now, man. Now at that point, Eliakim, one of the governors who's hanging out by the wall, yells down to Rabshakeh, hey, speak to us, not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic. We understand Aramaic. The people speak Hebrew. Now you know why he did that. Because in speaking it in Hebrew, the words would deplete the people of Israel and Judah of their faith. To hear this incredible warrior saying, You are toast. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to fillet you for dinner. 
He said, hey, speak to us in Aramaic. We understand it. Don't speak to him in Hebrew. But they didn't heed it. They just said, you go tell Hezekiah. He's in trouble. And so they went and told Hezekiah, and Hezekiah got really troubled. That, oh, no, what do we do? He said, it's like a woman have, ready to have a baby, but none is there. There's no strength to deliver the child. And so we read that Hezekiah went into the temple of the Lord and spread the letter out. Sennacherib sent through Rabshakeh before the Lord and said, Oh God, these are your people. Work, act. And it was at that point that God sends Isaiah to him. And Isaiah said, Hezekiah, don't worry. Not one arrow will penetrate the city. They will hear a rumor from their country and be sent back. And the Rabshakeh and Sennacherib will be killed in their own land. This chapter is recorded during that time. Actually, these three chapters are recorded during that time. What is interesting to me is, first of all, the incredible revival that swept Nineveh. But it didn't last. And you know, God never will deal with a nation based solely upon its history. Just because at one time they were a godly nation and they all repented, there was all revival... That was a long time ago. This is 100 to 150 years later. What are you doing with your light now? Remember Jesus said, If the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Meaning, when the light shines you in the face and you can't see it, you are blind, man. And when you deliberately choose to turn from the light and walk in darkness and blindness, the inevitability is judgment. So God says there's no turning back. I read uh, the words of a U.S. senator who said the average life expectancy of a nation, of a modern government, of a society, is around 200 years. As he looks historically, and he sees nations that come out of nowhere and rise and flourish, that in their peak they last about 200 years. They begin and struggle. They struggle for freedom. They expand their freedom. They become lazy and apathetic and greedy and eventually they fall once again. Well, our nation is a little over 200 years old. And many of the same things, though it's not an exact parallel, could be said of our nation, especially the way our government is so lenient upon crime. And we have become so lightweight, I believe, so milk-toasty in the way we deal with criminals. We're so concerned with what happens to the criminals while we neglect the victim. We feel so sorry for that criminal that we neglect the victim. Hey, feel sorry for the criminal, yes. But I think that a society should exercise justice to protect the innocent victims. And the rights should be on the side of the innocent victims. God will bring that out here in this chapter. So it's a burden or it's an oracle given by this Elkishite, Nahum, comforter to Nineveh, that great city, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, who rested on the banks of the great Tigris River, a huge, impressive city, the walls a hundred feet high, 19 miles in diameter, 200 guard towers around it. The guard towers were 200 feet from the ground up, so a hundred feet above the walls, impressive thought to be impregnable. Two and a half miles of the walls of the city were actually jutted out into the Tigris River. So that to overtake it, you'd have to kind of surround the city, but breach the city through the river. And yet we're going to see how she fell tonight. 
You're going to read in this chapter what you would consider to be a dichotomy. Perhaps a contradiction. It is stated God is good, but then it's stated that God is vengeful, filled with wrath. Many of us do not like to view God that way. In fact, we'd like to see God as this bearded, old, soft, smiling gentleman sitting in the clouds, just sort of waving his hand, beckoning anyone and everyone to come, no matter what they've done or who they are under any condition, whether they've repented or not, accepted Jesus or not, believe in anything they want to believe in. Just, hey, come on in. Anybody, man. Any view of God that fails to take in consideration the wrath of God is a distorted view of God. It is. God's wrath is a comfort to God's people who often throughout history were oppressed and persecuted by wicked nations. God says, don't worry, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Oh, but that's not fair. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. When you read a newspaper article of terrorists who come in and kill little children. Rapists, murderers. Does does that bother you? Or do you think, well, they're just a product of their environment. Why should we put them in jail? Why should we have a punishment against them, man? Think how God feels as He sees the wickedness of the world, of those kinds of things multiplied a thousand, a million fold throughout generations. For God not to judge... If God didn't judge, God would not be good. A God who would just blink His eyes at all wickedness, you could not justifiably call Him a good God. Goodness, justice requires judgment. The beautiful thing is God is slow to anger. God does not want anybody to perish. He wants everyone to repent. The Bible says that. God does not relish judgment. God loved Nineveh. But God will either be your Savior or your judge. Like the story of the two Australian fellows who grew up together. I hear it's a true story. They were best of friends. They went to college until their paths diverged, went different directions. One became a banker. One became a judge, a lawyer and then a judge. The banker fell into some hard times and with some bad people and he started ripping people off, ripping the bank off and squandered lots of funds. He stole something like a quarter of a million dollars. He was caught and he was brought before the judge and guess who his judge was? The friend he graduated from college with. The courtroom was packed that day filled with reporters and interested people in the community to see what would happen. The the guy came forth stated his case, the judge, to the surprise of the courtroom, leveled the stiffest punishment possible at his friend the banker. An incredibly high fine. And as soon as he did that, and the banker's mouth dropped, then the judge stepped up from his bench, took off his robe, embraced his friend, and said, now I want you to know something. I've sold my house. I've sold off lots of my property, and I paid your fine." He was both just in leveling the fine 
gracious, merciful, and slow to anger and paying for it himself. So you can't blame God and say, that's not fair, God, for you to judge. God put judgment on His Son at the cross. For a person to shake his fist at God, you're speaking to a God who not only said He'll judge the world, but put judgment upon His Son so that if you turn to Him, you'll escape judgment and you'll find newness of life. That's why I say that's a pretty good deal. And I say that a person's a fool to pass that one up. No, I don't want to be forgiven. I don't like the idea of blood being shed for my sin. In fact, I'm not a sinner. I'll stand before God myself. I have a few words to say to Him. Oh, well, let's read about that tonight. (laughs) The Burden Against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries. He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. Now again, just to underline this theme, 100, 150 years before this, Nineveh repented. I mean 100%. Talk about revival. We've never seen a revival like Nineveh. There were over 120,000 children alone in Nineveh. Jonah would have loved to preach the message of Nahum. He'd have dug it. He wanted God to smoke on him. He wanted roast Ninevite. He was angry that God was merciful and slow to anger. In fact, he pouted because of it. And when God sent this huge gourd, this plant to grow over his head, he was happy for a little while. And then when it withered, he got angry at God. And God said, Jonah, is it right for you to get angry because this stupid little plant died? And I wanted to spare the whole city of Nineveh where there's 120,000 little kids who can't discern between their right and left hands plus cattle and innocent beings. You didn't want me to spare them? He would have loved to preach this message, but it was given to Nahum to preach because they repented. Now they have crossed the line. Now listen carefully. I believe that a nation, moreover an individual, can cross over a mark where there's no turning back. Jeremiah was instructed by God as he was interceding and praying for his own nation because the sin of the nation had compounded over time. God finally said, Jeremiah, don't you dare even pray for them. If you do, I will not listen to you any longer. The Bible talks about the state of being reprobate past feeling. Their conscience is seared with a hot iron. I don't know what that line is. I don't know when it is. I'd be a fool to judge that in a person's life. I would be. And I don't. And I continue to pray for people. But there is a mark. Not that the grace of God cannot reach down to a person, but a person can become so callous that he no longer reaches out for the grace of God. Totally impervious to the penetration of God's Spirit. There's that old poem. There is a time we know not when, a line we know not where, that marks the destiny of man between sorrow and despair. There is a line, though by man unseen, once it has been crossed, even God and all His love has sworn, all is lost. A person can get to that place. And woe to the nation who does. In fact, look over at chapter 3, verse 19. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. 
It's over. It's completely over. Now, in verse 2 of chapter 1, there's a description of God's character. It says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. When we read about God being jealous, don't get the idea that God is this um, melancholy sort of person emotionally who just reacts at things and flies off the handle. And In fact, if you look up jealousy in a dictionary, the primary definition is one, is it's the state of exacting solitary devotion. God wants all of you. Exodus 20 is the first time this word is used. God says, don't carve an image to bow down to it. Don't worship other gods. For the Lord your God is a jealous God. God wants you. God doesn't want you dating other gods. God doesn't want you having an affair with the passions of this world. He wants all of you. Our God is a jealous God. And in that sense, jealousy is a good attribute, not an evil attribute. Every now and then a woman will say, my husband's a good man. He's not jealous at all. I wouldn't say he's a good man then. I'm a jealous husband. That doesn't mean that I have weird thoughts all the time. <laughs> Where'd you go? To the store. Did you really? That's ridiculous. But I'm jealous over my wife's love. I want all of her. God wants all of you. He's jealous. And the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious because He hates sin. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. It's been over a hundred years since the seeds of that revival had grown, bore no fruit, eventually died out, and now God is ready to judge. He's slow to anger. He's great in power. He will not at all acquit the wicked. You see, both of these things are true. God is gracious, loving, good. He avenges. He is furious. He is jealous. Both of those things are equally as true. In fact, there's a scripture in Romans chapter 11. Therefore, brethren, consider the goodness and the severity of the Lord. He's good and He's severe. And uh, we'll go on and see how. The Lord has His way. In the whirlwind and the storm, the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. And the flower of Lebanon wilts. These were areas known for their fertility. Green, lush Carmel. Go to Carmel this time of the year. It will blow your mind. Filled with forests, wild flowers. Citrus. Fertile brown soil. Beautifully rich. Lebanon was known for its forests up in the higher elevations. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? I'm going to ask you that question tonight. Those of you who are not saved, who happen to be here. Who can stand before his indignation? Do you tell me that you think... I can stand before God. In fact, I have a few things I want to tell Him when I get there. I have a few questions about the way this world's been run. He could have done a better job. I'll stand. I've been a good person. You're going to stand before God's indignation in your own self-righteousness. You will be blown off the threshing floor like chaff. <laughs> 
I will stand before God one day and you will stand before God one day. And there's only one, the Bible says, who can justify. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only mediator between God and man. It would be interesting to hear you at the judgment seat start rattling off your good deeds and how wonderful you've been. How ludicrous will it sound before the perfect being say, God, let me tell you about how good I was. Let me tell you the things that I gave to financially. Let me tell you how I really was... uh, I did this and I did that and I went to church even and I even passed out a few tracts. Many will say in that day, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, and will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we did this in Your name. We cast out demons in Your name. And He'll say... I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. What a surprise. What a desperate surprise. A grisly surprise. God will say, What right do you have to be in my house? What will you tell him? You should be able to point to that man with five wounds. Say him. Those wounds were for me. That blood was shed for me. I don't deserve to be here. just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? Without a Savior, you don't have a chance. His fury is poured out like fire. His rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. With an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. Psalm 107 says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, and his mercies endure forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And so I'm going to say so. The Lord is good. If the redeemed don't say so, no one else will. The unbelievers aren't saying it. They're questioning God. If Christians can't say God is good through every circumstances, how's the world going to know it? The world needs to see it. Through good times and bad times, when prosperity stares us in the face, when adversity stares us in the face, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knows those who trust Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make an utter end of its place and darkness will pursue his enemies. I believe that this is prophetic of how Nineveh Nineveh fell. In the 5th century B.C. there was a Greek historian who described the fall of Nineveh due to the raising of the floodwaters of the Tigris River that cut a hole in the wall because of the pressure. It was so strong that that two and a half mile stretch of wall along the Tigris caved in The floodwaters went through the city, destroyed the elevations and the foundations of the palaces and just completely wiped the city out so that the conquerors could come in and totally dispose of the city. It will be like a flood. What do you conspire against the Lord now? God is addressing the Ninevites themselves, the Assyrians. 
He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. In other words, don't worry, it'll only take one time. Don't have to do it twice. For while tangled like thorns, while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counsel. Nineveh was thought to be impenetrable. In fact, she was boasting in that, that she could conquer anyone. She was like the lion of the jungle. There was a group of Medes under a guy by the name of Syaxerxes who founded the Median Empire. They weren't very strong, but they decided to encircle in the north the city of Nineveh. The Ninevites were so strong, they were able to push the forces out into the Tigris River. And so they won the first victory. Because they won the first victory, that night they got drunk. They had a huge party. They just party hardy. And they got soused. They got drunk. And so the Medians and the Babylonians took advantage of them in their drunken stupor and took actually a portion of the city that night due to their drunkenness in their pride. That's what it's speaking about. Verse 11 says that there's one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. His name was Sennacherib. Strange name. He was an Assyrian. In 701, he started a campaign against all of the area of the Middle East. And he was very successful in overtaking quite a bit of it. Um, You might want to turn at this point to Isaiah chapter 36. Well, I told you about 36. Turn to 37. Sennacherib sends one of his emissaries, shouts against the people on the wall. The people are scared to death. Their hearts beating fast. Adrenaline's flowing through their veins. Hezekiah hears about it, and he feels the same way. Chapter 37, verse 1, And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, went into the house of the Lord, and he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the, pri- and the, pri- of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom the master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will reprove the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. we got trouble outside the walls. It's time to have a prayer meeting, guys. Tell that to Isaiah. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah said, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Don't be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him. He will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Sennacherib came in, sent Rabshakeh to Jerusalem. They heard of trouble in Egypt, part of their kingdom. They went back home to assess the problem, back to Assyria. While they were in the temple, two of his men came in and murdered him. And so prophetically, it came to pass. Um, It says, The Rabshakeh returned, found the king of Assyria warning against Libna, verse 8. He heard that he departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning 
uh, Tirakah, king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the Assyria. Sennacherib wrote, wrote Hezekiah a letter and said, It's not going to work. You don't have enough strength. Forget trusting in your God. I don't believe in God. I'm going to catch you. I'm going to bury you. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. There you go. I love it. Hey, spread it before the Lord, man, your troubles. You got bills? Spread them out before the Lord. Lord, look. Lord, I can't do it, God. Somebody takes you to court? Spread it out before the Lord. Somebody writes you a nasty letter? Spread it out before the Lord. Examine your heart. Take it to God. That's the best place for it. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. In verse 21, Isaiah the son of Amos said to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib the king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. And it's a beautiful prophecy how God would protect them. Look in verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed, went away, returned home, remained at Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nishroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esrahaddon, his son, reigned in his place. So Isaiah says, don't worry, God will take care of you. God did. Back to Nahum, which was during that time. God says in verse 11, From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Speaking of Sennacherib. Thus says the Lord, Though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. So Judah, Israel... I spanked you. You listened. Your king prayed to me. I won't afflict you anymore with the Assyrians. The Assyrians have done their job. I'll push them back home. I'll take care of Sennacherib. I'll take care of your enemies. I will afflict you no more. Interesting. God takes responsibility for the affliction. Would a God of love afflict? Yeah. Nathan asked that question when I take out the spanker. Would a dad of love spank my rear end so hard that I cry so loud? Yes, I would. Because I love you, I will do it. I bring it into the room. No, dad, no. You don't love me. I know that if I don't act now and I spare the rod, that I will spoil the child and he will grow up questioning my love. But because I promise and follow through and then I smother him with love and affirmation in special times besides that, he is assured of my love. He knows that there are parameters. He knows that there are walls and he knows that I'll always be there. He knows that there's consistency. Though I have afflicted, I will afflict you no longer.
For now I will break off his yokes from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetrated no longer. In other words, Sennacherib, I'm cutting off your lineage. Your posterity will not have any long-term reigning in Assyria. Though Ezra had and his son did, it wasn't long that he was wiped out by the Babylonians. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name, I already said that, out of the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the molded image and I will dig your grave for you are vile. And it happened, didn't it? He was worshiping in the house of his God and his sons killed him. And God says, I'm going to bury you, pal. Now it was Rabshakeh and Sennacherib who said, Hezekiah, we're going to bury you, man. God says, I'm going to bury you back home as you worship your idols. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts. Permit or perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This sounds a lot like Isaiah chapter 52, doesn't it? Same verse almost. Isaiah is speaking comfort to the children of Israel. The good news proclaimed is that God would destroy the Babylonians. Here the good news is that God will destroy the Assyrians. And so he says, O Judah, keep your feasts. Don't give up your worship. They were at the place where they thought, what good is it to serve God? What advantage of it is it to stay going to the temple, performing my vows, going to the feasts? It's like a Christian who says, I'm afflicted. I'm going through trials. What good does it do? to keep going to church, reading my Bible, fellowshipping with Christians, trusting God. What good has it gotten me into? God says, hang in there. Your day is coming. For the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Now in chapters 2 and 3, we'll brush through this as God speaks now to Nineveh about their complete and utter destruction. He who scatters has come up before your face. Who is he who scatters? Two people. Syaxerxes, the Mede, Nabopolassar, the, son of Nebu- or the father of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, formed a coalition together to defeat the city of Nineveh. Now, ironically, actually in sarcasm, God gets sarcastic here. Because He's telling the Assyrians, hey, man the fort, do all that you can. You know, get strong. Knowing that he would wipe them out. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily, for the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob, like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches. The Assyrians were intimidating as an army. We know from history that they were advanced in chariot making. They were fast. At the ends of their chariots, they developed this little scythe or a sword that would come out and bend with a sharp razor on it so that the chariots could get close, as close as possible to the fighting men in some places to just cut their legs in two. Cut the horse's legs destroy the wooden wheels of the older chariots. They sort of had these turbocharged chariots, you know, state-of-the-art. The shields of the Assyrians were red for two reasons. Intimidation, as they would shine in the sun, kind of blind a person. And secondly, so that if the Assyrian himself was cut, 
you couldn't see him bleeding, which would give an advantage to the enemy as he said, oh, he's bleeding. Now I've got him. It would blend in. Red garments, red shields. You couldn't detect if there was any blood so that the enemy couldn't gain an advantage. In the days of his preparation, and his spears are brandished, state of the art, you know. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. It's funny to hear how people will give fanciful interpretations to different parts of the Scripture. There are people who do not have a foundation in the Scripture and they do this with prophecy. They think they see things that aren't there. It's sort of like around this state, there's so much superstition of apparitions. They see Jesus in the tortilla. The Virgin Mary in the Venetian blinds. I saw it, man. It's got to be true. There were people, there are people who read the Bible and they see the strangest things and have said that verse 4 is a prophecy of the modern day automobile. It's not at all what he's speaking of. He's speaking of chariots that jostle with their little scythes on the end and intimidate the enemy. But now read through it again and you, you can see fancifully try to get their mindset. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. Busy city streets. Bogus. He remembers his worthies. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to their walls and the defense is prepared. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. In one verse here, we have how the city fell. The wall was caved in because after Cyaxerxes was defeated into the Euphrates, it was a three-year siege, by the way. Uh, I, I want to back up. The Gulf War was, has got to have been the fastest war on record for the magnitude of firepower and destruction. I mean, it was just quick. In the days of old, however, they did not have stealth bombers or fighters, Patriot missiles, smart bombs. They would wage war by siege. Cities had walls. Armies would come in and draw a circle around the city with its troops and fortify the city so that people couldn't get in or go out. Thereby, there couldn't be commerce in the city. You couldn't bring supplies in. You couldn't bring water in. You couldn't bring anything you needed in. Therefore, cities within the walls would have to store water and food supplies and military supplies in case of a siege. They would build their walls, actually their city, upon a mountain so that you could see the enemy coming. The enemy, as we said, would draw a circle around the city with its troops and camp there. They would just live there. Sometimes for years to starve the people in the city out. The city and the the people in the city would hope that they could conquer their attackers, the aggressors, so that they could have access to supplies. So during the siege, they would have to go into their cisterns, these huge rock caverns dug where the rain would come in. They would store water. They would use uh, um, the crops that they had within the city, and they would just live. It took years. Well, During the third year of the siege... History tells us that the rains were so heavy in that part of the world that the Tigris River 
overflowed its banks in an unusual manner so that that two and a half mile section of wall caved in, created a breach in the walls. Nabopolassar and his troops, Cyaxerxes and his troops could come in and just take over the city. The palace was flooded. The foundations were destroyed. And they were caught in, in a drunken stupor and completely overtaken. So verse 6 is kind of an encapsulated prediction of what would happen. It is decreed. She shall be led away captive, brought up, and her maidservant shall lead her as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they, they cry, but no one turns back. Take the spoil of silver. Take the spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. So the prophecy is to those who would come in and take over the city of Nineveh, finding the spoils of war that she took from actually all of the cities and countries that she despoiled herself. She would rip off as tribute money or as spoils of war, vestments, garments, um, gold and silver, and store them within the city. A very rich environment. Nabopolassar, the Babylonians, would of course rip them off. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts, the knees shake, much pain is on every side, and all their faces are drained of color. Where is the dwelling of the lion, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion walked, the lioness and the lion's cub? And no one has made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Now I believe that this is speaking of the fierceness of the Assyrian kings themselves. If you go to the British Museum or even the museum in Berlin, there are reliefs of both the Babylonian Empire and the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians had as carvings in the relief in the stones of the city the symbol of the lion. Babylon also had a winged lion as its you know, major animal, kind of the symbol of the country. The Assyrians did as well because the lion depicted the king of the forest pouncing on its prey. And it depicted the warrior kings of Assyria who would come and just completely wipe out being fierce and vengeful. Tiglath-Pileser I, one of the Assyrian kings, boasted of having conquered 60 kings. He um, boasted of making an entire mountain red, painted red with the blood of the enemies. In fact, he would go into uh, an area, cut the heads of the people of the city off, and pile their heads in front of the city's entrance as kind of his tribute to his own wickedness. Behold, verse 13, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. God says that not very many times in the Scripture. When He does, look out. He said it prophetically to Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 for coming against the nation of Israel. God says, I am against you and promise their destruction. I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messenger shall be heard no more. Woe to the bloody city. It is full of lies and robberies. Victim never departs. The noise of a whip, the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. That's what they would hear. The Assyrians would hear the sounds of war coming to their own city. 
of the rider going on the horse, the wheel shaking, the sound of war coming against the walls and against the people. Horsemen charged with bright sword, glittering spear. There's a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. Because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. First he compares her to a harlot. Then he says, I will lift your dress over your face and expose your shame to the world. That's the idiom here. I will show nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who shall bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Before you get so distressed by that language, that's heavy-duty stuff. Remember what we just read. God is good. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. God is good. God will be a Savior or a judge. God loved the Ninevites. God delighted in forgiving all of them when they turned. Jonah said, You're a God that loves compassion. You're slow to anger, filled with mercy. You don't get mad very quick. God wanted that revival in Nineveh. But now they've turned. Thus this language. Now we ask them a question of their own past history. It's as if God sits down with the leaders and He says, Now I want to give you a history lesson. Open up your history books to the time when you Ninevites went down to Egypt and conquered the city of Noamon, the city of Thebes, that great Egyptian stronghold down in the Nile. Do you remember the time when you were merciless, when you completely wiped them out? Now, they were stronger than you are now, and yet you destroyed them. And so listen to the question, are you better than Noamon that was situated by the river? This time it's the Nile River, not the Tigris that had the waters around her, whose rampart was like the sea, whose wall was was like the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength. And it was boundless. Put and Lubim were your helpers. Lubim is modern-day Libya. Put was Somaliland. They were your helpers. They came against this great city on the Nile River. If you went down to Egypt today, it's a fascinating place to go. You went down to the, you follow the Nile River down, you come to a place called Thebes. The ancient ruins of Egypt, where the pharaohs had their 18th, 19th, and 20th dynasty rule. Across the river on the east bank is the temples of Karnak. Temple over at Luxor. I mean, awesome. Awesome. Relics of the past. Destroyed by the Ninevites. God says, are you better than them? When they were stronger than you are now, they fell. He goes on to say, yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for the honorable men. And all of her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge 
from the enemy. Your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. You get the picture here? A ripe fig tree, figs lack strength when they're fully ripe. And all you have to do is go up to a tree and just shake it. Not very hard and they'll fall off. Strong wind will knock them off. God says, you're not that strong. You're not as strong as Noah own Thebes when it fell to you. You're like a fig tree. Blow on you. Shake you. Your figs will fall off into the um, mouths of the eater. Surely your people in your midst are women. <laughs> no offense, gals. But to a guy, man, this is quite a chop. Guys, remember in high school, somebody wants to pick a fight with you? If they want to denounce your masculinity, that's what they'll say. You're a woman. You fight like a girl. God was speaking here. When the attackers would come through the city of Nineveh, the strength of the honorable men would melt and they'd be like a hysterical woman who's not trained for war. They themselves wouldn't be able to handle the siege of Nabopolassar and Syaxerxes. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Draw your water for the siege. Now he's being sarcastic again. You know, say, go ahead, draw the water. The water you have in the cisterns, hope it lasts. Fortify your strongholds. Go to the, into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. In other words, if an enemy was successful in taking a battering ram and knocking a hole in the wall, there were people, not only soldiers, but there were masons who would be by the wall and they would quickly patch it up with brick and mortar. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. I'll eat you up like a locust. Make yourselves many like the locust. Make yourselves many like a swarming locust. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Your commanders are like swarming locusts. Your captains like great grasshoppers which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away. And the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. The prophet is speaking of the rulers of Assyria lying dead upon the hills and through the valleys. Your shepherds are sleeping. They were sleeping the sleep of death. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains. No one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All you who hear news, all who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? When people hear that you've been wiped out, they are going to rejoice. Does it remind you of Revelation? When Babylon falls, there's this great rejoicing in heaven. Babylon has fallen, that great harlot who deceived the nations. Assyria would soon fall. And all the people, including Judea, Israel, the area of the Philistines, Moab, Edom, would all rejoice at the fall of Assyria. Phoenicia, all rejoice at the fall of Assyria. The lesson for modern times is in this book. Our society needs to learn the lesson of this book. We are so lenient, I think, and so lax upon criminals. 
Our justice system was originally founded upon the Mosaic system, the Mosaic law. But I think more and more we stray from it. I believe that a just retribution should be carried out speedily, not waiting months and years and years for trials, clogging up the court system with rhetoric and red tape so that we now have to send new generations of people to law school just to take care of the paperwork that exists. Take care of it speedily. Our prisons are filled with people. And the problem is, is they're put in there, they're kept in there, and then they, they get let out. Nobody's there afterwards to work them back into society, to give them a helping hand. But instead of working quickly, and I, and, and I believe in stiff punishment for crimes, I think that we should use the dollars that are spent for the building of new prisons. You could build huge homes for homeless people with that. We treat, you know, oftentimes criminals are treated better than the homeless. And I've known people who've said, I've been homeless and I've committed a crime so that I could have a free meal and a place to stay out of the cold. Because I know I'll get treated right. God is good. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. But He gets down. And a society must learn that lesson. As we've said before, today is the age of grace, and I'm so grateful for it. God extends His mercy. There have been revivals in the past that have swept through our country. Where are they now? Look at England, one of the greatest nations in the world that shined the gospel as a light to all the world. At one time, the greatest nation on earth. She's not first anymore. She's not second anymore. She's not third anymore. She's way down the list. The average English person has never heard of Wesley or Whitfield. Yet they shook that country. This country has been shaken with revival. God honored it. But there comes a time when a nation goes so far away from God that God must judge. I wonder if we're not approaching that point or have already passed that point. And some people are more optimistic than that. Fine. I pray for our nation. I pray that God will revive this nation and pour out His Spirit. And I'll continue to preach the gospel in this great nation of ours. It is a great nation. It is a great inheritance. I love our country. I believe it's the greatest nation on this earth. But it's a country that is rapidly leaving the point, the time of revival. Leaving the point, the time of revival.